Yeah, well, like Dave said, we did transition back to the U.S., um, which is where I'm from, and uh, our family is from, after living here in Dubai for almost 10 years uh, and being part of this church. And so uh, to see you this morning is just a real treat and a, a real privilege. Um, and uh, so we're doing well. Uh, and thank you for so many of you who have asked. Uh, Angela and the kids definitely send their greetings. I can't uh, tell you how many times, particularly Joseph, uh, asked if he could join me on the trip and I uh, had to tell him not this time but hopefully a time in the future. Uh, but Angela definitely uh, sends her greetings, wishes that she was here. Uh, so if you know her or if you still have her in your WhatsApp, um, just to give her a note of greeting today would be a special encouragement as she would long to be here uh, as well. Uh, so we moved back to Dallas, where is, which is where I'm from. We're now members of a church called Citizens Church, uh, which is a great church. And even the name has just been of encouragement to us. Uh, the name Citizens Church is just a reminder that we live now in Dallas not as primarily citizens of the U.S., but as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so that remains our joy. Uh, as Dave mentioned, uh, a big reason or the reason for our move back to the U.S. was so that I could integrate fully into the leadership team of a ministry called Acts 29. So it's been a privilege to join into that. And um, my role is to really be an ambassador for the work of church planting around the world. And so work with the 250 uh, some odd churches uh, that are part of partnering with Acts 29 to plant churches around the world. And that's a great joy. Uh, this week, being back here, I get to meet with some of our Acts 29 churches in the area, as well as continue uh, to work in ministries here. I'm on the board of the seminary, and so we'll have a board meeting to talk about things like how we can do classes in Kuwait and, and around the world, so it's a privilege to be involved in that. Uh, also with the Advance Initiative Conference, another ministry I love uh, to be part of. And so if you haven't heard about that, check out your bulletin, and there's a conference coming up that you're all invited to on Friday and Saturday. Uh, but Advanced Initiative particularly is about mobilizing South Asians and people from a South Asian background uh, to take the next steps in gospel ministry, particularly church planting. And so if that's something that's interesting to you, that you'd love to pray for and be informed about, uh, come along to that conference. The, the information is there in the bulletin. Well, we are parachuting today into Luke's gospel. Uh, when I got back to the to the U.S. over the summer, I did two things relative to my just personal spiritual life. I bought a new Bible. This is it. It's a nice Bible. Um, and started a new study in the book of Luke. Felt like a new season, a new time. I was just kind of praying for a little while and thinking through where I would direct my attention in Scripture as we were settling back into the States and just thought, you know what? Luke and Acts, this pairing of books, is really so central to um, explaining the mission of Christ in the world. And so I wanted to have my mind stirring there as we went back to the U.S., and in this new season, remind myself of the mission of Christ and um, as it's laid out in the gospel and then uh, through the Acts of the Apostles. What surprised me about that as I started that study, just reading through the book of Luke, was when I came to chapter 4. And so I came to chapter 4, and what I saw there surprised me and stunned me. And I want to tell you about it today and this morning. It's, it's stuck with me since then. And what surprised me was the, the, the dissonance and the contrast between the two responses of these people in the synagogue in Nazareth. 
But to, to lead you into that, maybe you haven't been in the, in the book of Luke recently, but so to catch you up where we've been, if you had been reading along in the book of Luke, what you would have seen is that in chapter one, we hear about the birth of Jesus Christ. His birth in early life actually happens in chapter two, all the events leading up to it, chapter one, his birth happens in chapter two. Then in chapter three, the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist, talking about this one who has come. We get the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter four, and then, or in chapter three, and then in chapter four, we see his ministry begin. He's tempted by the devil, and then this story where we are now is really the launching off point of Jesus' earthly ministry as Luke tells it. And it doesn't take long for that ministry to take an interesting turn. Because through those chapters that I just zoomed over, what the message we would have heard about Jesus is one of amazement and awe. Everyone who talked about Jesus, his reputation was preceding him. They marveled at him. In the, in verse, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the angels, uh, angels announcing his birth, they proclaim this, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, for there all, will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Angels from heaven announcing the birth of Jesus Christ saying what? This is great news. Good news of great joy for all the peoples. And the shepherds that received that news, they go and talk about it with others and it says that the people who heard it from them wondered. And that Mary, when she heard that, treasured in her heart. Luke is using all of these terms to tell us about the reception of Jesus. It says that he was treasured. It said that favor uh, for him was growing with God and man. In, verse, or in chapter 1, when he's talking, or chapter 2, he's talking with the, the teachers in the temple. Jesus, the boy, you remember that. He's answering questions there in the temple. And the teachers, it says, were amazed. And when his parents saw it, it says they were astonished. So everything that Luke is doing here in the lead up to chapter four is getting us to think that the, the reputation, the word on the street about Jesus is amazing. He's more popular than Taylor Swift. He has the name. And then he arrives in his hometown in Nazareth. And the verses immediately previous to our story today the Nazareth where he comes from, where he is from, this is his hometown, and it says that all the eyes in the room were fixed on him. Everybody, the report about him was good. In verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So you see this. Luke is, is, is building up this anticipation, this Jesus, everyone likes him. Everyone thinks he's amazing. Everyone thinks this is great. He's the Lord's anointed one. Salvation has come. His wisdom is vast. He has power over sin. He's powerful. But then what explains the second response? Because did you, did you hear the second response at the end of the scripture reading? Verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Well, that is not what we were expecting. For four chapters, he's been building up this great report, and now suddenly everybody wants to kill him. So what happened between those two responses? 
What were the things that Jesus said to the people that led them to that spirit of wrath that led him to want to kill them or to kill him? Because you think about that after all of this anticipation, how easy would it have been for Jesus just go with the flow? How easy would it have been for Jesus just to give the popular message and to pat people on the back and to to see his fame grow? Well, he wasn't there for that. He wasn't there just to put on a spectacle. He was there to set people free by the truth that he had to bring. And so knowing their hearts, Jesus loved them too much to not confront their sin and not to clarify why he came So for the rest of our time, I'm just going to use those two headers, that he confronts their pride and he confirms his mission. Confronts their pride and confirms his mission. And the way he does this is he he tells two proverbs and two stories. Two proverbs and two stories. He confronts their sin with the, the two proverbs and he confirms his mission with the two stories. Well, let's look at those two Proverbs first. You know what a proverb is, right? A proverb is a, a short saying. When you want to say something, but you say something else to say that something, you want to talk about that, but you say this to say that, that's a proverb. Every culture I've been around has their proverbs. I remember being in Uganda when I was in university, and we were going around to Uh, schools to teach and to to evangelize. And on the wall of the school, there was a proverb. It said, if you want to sit under the shade of a tree when you're old, plant a seed when you're young. Now, this wasn't a training institute on forestry. This was an elementary school. The point of the sign was to get the kids to learn math. So why were they talking about trees? It was a proverb. Or for some of you, you might know um, some of the Proverbs from Texas, the country that I now live in. I'm sorry, the state that I now live in. Um, That Texas has a lot of its own Proverbs. This one might be one you're familiar with. If someone is boastful and arrogant, they're about to do something, and you're kind of giving them that skeptical eye of, are you ready for this? They'll say, hey, this ain't my first rodeo. What they mean is, I've, been, I've done this before. What they don't mean is, I can ride horses. It's a proverb. It's a phrase. And Jesus is doing that here. To confront their pride and to confront their sin, he uses some phrases and he uses some proverbs. And the first is this in verse 23. Doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. So that's the proverb. And then Jesus provides some expanded commentary on that. He gives voice to what is in the heart of the people. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So Jesus, discerning their hearts, he sees how they're looking at him, and he quotes from this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What it means is, hey, we see that you're a doctor, and we are your people. So if you're the doctor, then heal yourself meaning heal us, which is clarified by saying what you did in Capernaum, do in your hometown as well. We know that you have done some some doctoring over there, physician, but heal yourself, heal your hometown. As Charles Spurgeon says of these verses, 
The people were arguing, Jesus is a Nazareth man. Of course he's duty-bound to help Nazareth. They consider themselves as being, a, in a sort, his proprietors who could command his power at their own discretion. You see, they, they were doing what, what if, if you're familiar with movies or maybe you've seen or read about this, this dynamic where someone in a poor community, they suddenly get famous. They maybe an athlete or a musician, their hit goes viral, and suddenly they have fame and fortune. And all those people in the neighborhood and the town that they grew up in start to become their best friend and say, hey, you know, I grew up with you. I was your homie. Can you get me a job? Can you give me an introduction? Can you do this? That's what the people in Nazareth are kind of doing around Jesus. And there's a word for this. It's called entitlement. Entitlement. They did nothing, but they expected something. And Jesus sees that in the people. They're appearing to be amazed by him. They're they're marveling at his gracious words, but truly embracing him is impossible for them because they're coming to him with their their hand expectant, entitled, not in a heart that's dependent in faith. They assumed Jesus would give them what they wanted, and they did that because they were comparing themselves. Comparison is something that we do to fan the flame of entitlement in our hearts. Now, you know this. I don't have to tell you it. If you've ever opened the social media app Instagram, you've been tempted to do this exact thing. You see what other people are doing, and they're living such idyllic lives. Somehow they have the friends that we would want to have. They're traveling to the places that we would want to travel They're saying the things in the perfect way we wish we could say them. And somehow they're even making their sufferings look idyllic. They have a bad day and somehow it it seems like, man, that's a bad day I would want to have. I don't understand how Instagram does it, but that's what it does. It thrives on this tendency in our hearts to comparison. And when we start to compare, we start to feel entitled and say, well, I want that. Why does that person have that? I should have it. And we do this in ministry life as well and in our, in our spiritual lives. We see someone who's growing spiritually. We see someone who's spiritually fruitful and we say, why, why, why is that happening to them? What about me? Why is, why is that other church growing? What about my church? And we can do it in all different ways. Just like the people here in this synagogue were looking at Capernaum and saying, do it for us, Jesus. We can do the same. Personally speaking, I remember when we moved to India, my wife and I, we lived there for several years and we left the U.S. and we wanted to move to, to Delhi to be part of a church plant there and to see that church plant churches. We had our two young kids with us and the ministry was going well as we settled in, learning Hindi, enjoying the time there. But because of my health, my asthma, I literally couldn't breathe The pollution was suffocating me. And I remember prayers that actually became more of protests, saying, God, why are you doing this to me? Don't you know I'm I'm trying to help? I'm here in India doing good work. Why are you making this hard for me? This other person can breathe here, and they're, they're not even that nice. 
give me his lungs. Somehow, those prayers become prayers of frustration, prayers of entitlement. It's good to have ambition for India. It's, it's good to pray for healing. Those are not bad things. But when we come to the Lord with entitlement, comparing ourselves to others and say, do it for me, God, we're not coming with faith and we can't expect to receive from him. And let me press in here even just a little bit more. Because again, see here in this text, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who have grown up going to the synagogue every week. They've grown up hearing the scriptures read to them every week. These people had inadvertently perhaps, but nonetheless the case, been trained in a kind of religiosity that was telling them, if you do this, then God will have to do that. And how many of you might be susceptible to the same thing? You've been trained, perhaps inadvertently, but no less the case, to believe that if you just turn up at church on Sunday, and if you just do this enough, if you just emotionally respond enough, God is definitely going to give you a breakthrough. You are definitely going to get that miracle. But that's not the case. That's entitlement. That is not the posture of dependent faith that the Bible would call us to. It's fine to pray for healing and it's fine to pray for provision, but it is wrong to take the posture that if I do X, Y, Z religious thing, then you deserve the blessings now that Jesus has only promised eternally. You know, Matthew's gospel records Jesus giving the antidote for this kind of perspective. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Friends, don't look at what's happening in Capernaum and say, God, you've got to do that for me. Jesus, I want that same miracle over here. Know that your Father cares for you. He values you. He knows your needs, and he, because he cares and values you, he has met your greatest need in Jesus Christ, your eternal salvation. Jesus didn't come to put on an earthly spectacle to make a few people amazed. Jesus came to accomplish eternal redemption so that everyone could be saved. By his perfect life and his sacrificial death, his raising to new life, he opened the way of salvation. So, if you've never laid aside your pride and your entitlement, I want to invite you to do that now. Maybe even as I've spoken, you've realized that you come here expecting reward for your attendance. That's not what Jesus told those people. He didn't commend their synagogue attendance, but he challenged their pride and their entitlement. That's the first proverb. As Jesus continues to confront their pride, he goes to the second proverb. Look in verse 24. 24, he says, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. 
Jesus first went after their pride of entitlement, and now he focuses on their pride of rejecting the prophets. Now, what, what does this mean that a prophet isn't acceptable in his hometown? Is, is Jesus telling them to be nicer to the rabbis? Is he telling them that they shouldn't just get excited about speakers coming from America, but they should be nice to the speakers that are from around town? No, the, the point is not to have a good attitude about local speakers. In telling about this same occasion, Matthew in his gospel says explicitly what's going on here is that the sin is unbelief. To reject the prophets is not just to make a commentary on that man, but to reject the prophets is to reject the content of their message. As they bring about the truth of God's word, to reject it in unbelief is the sin that Jesus is after here. Unbelief is the lack of faith. And do you see the great irony in this? It's actually pretty incredible. On the one hand, the hometown guy is there and they want what he has. On the other hand, they have the hometown guy and they reject what he says. It's all on their terms, isn't it? They want to reject the hometown guy's message but get the hometown guy's blessing. And what we see there is this toxic pairing of heart attitudes that both stem from pride. An attitude of demand, of entitlement, and the attitude of unbelief and rejection. So Jesus is exposing the shallowness of their affections for him. These, this, this amazement, this marveling, it's empty. Unbelief is to lack faith. Unbelief can, can be active, and we see active unbelief here as they respond to him, and, and later, as we, we already read, they're filled with wrath, and they rise up and drive him out and seek to bring him to the brow of the hill, and so they want to kill him. That's pretty active unbelief. And there's layers of active unbelief. Perhaps you know people like the man I talked to last week. Met him in a hotel lobby, and two minutes into the conversation, he was telling me about how he grew up in a, a Christian church and had completely rejected it and had all different kind of arguments and, and questions for why he had done that. And he, and he enjoyed arguing so much, he actually, at the end of the conversation, invited me to follow him online where we could continue to argue online which I have not availed myself of the opportunity to do. But he had a very active unbelief, which is very sad to see. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation like that, but to see in front of you the hardness of heart that's actively seeking to suppress belief is very sad, and I pray the Lord gives him humility to receive the truth. And for some of us, unbelief is not active, or for some of you, it might be passive, you come to church. You might even have a Bible at home. But in reality, your heart is cold. You've never repented of your sins. You've never sought to have a relationship with God through Christ. Your heart is cold towards Him. You keep Him at arm's length and His people even further. It's passive unbelief, but it has the same result life apart from God. Just like the people rejected the prophets, you are rejecting the prophetic message. 
Hebrews 11.6 says clearly, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, unbelief has to be drowned in the waters, the life-giving waters of faith. Do you see the difference in the contrast there? I hope you do. A heart that comes to Jesus in entitlement with demands while rejecting his message is the opposite of the heart of faith, which comes to him dependent, saying, God, I don't deserve any of this. And it doesn't come to him with rejection, but saying, I believe everything that you're saying. I need it. That's the heart of faith. Is that your heart? See, in these two short Proverbs, Jesus had pinpointed the prideful hearts of the people. They expressed amazement and marvel. They were emotional, but their hearts were far from him. And now, having diagnosed the problem, having confronted their pride, he goes to confirm his mission. He goes to confirm his mission, and that's in the two stories that we then see in verses 25 to 27. Those two stories are are fascinating as we get into them. They're both stories of prophets in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is telling them, just like you're rejecting me as a prophet now, you're actually not only rejecting me and what I'm saying, but you must know that the message I am carrying to you is the continuation of the message and the prophetic word that was given from the Old Testament till now. He tells the story, two kind of vignettes from one from the ministry of Elijah the prophet and another from Elisha. And there's a strong similarity to those two stories, and so they're really telling one message. The stories both involve going to people or ministering to people that are not from Israel. In Elijah's case, uh, there was a famine in Israel. It's a fascinating story in 1 Kings 17. There's a famine in Israel. Everyone is hungry. Everyone is needy. And as Jesus reminds them, there's many widows in Israel. But then Elijah is called to go outside the land. He's called to go to Zarephath and Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon, And he's called to go there and minister to a widow and not only minister to her but remain with her, giving priority to that ministry to serve this one particular person. Elisha, in the story there in verse 27, just as there was many widows in Israel, there was also many lepers in Israel, people who were sick and deathly sick of this disease. And in Elisha's time, He wasn't called to heal uh, many of those in Israel uh, healed of leprosy, but rather he healed a Syrian warlord king, a foreigner, and not just a foreigner, but a foreigner who had led attacks against Israel. And Jesus is reminding the people there in that synagogue, do you not see that my ministry is to all, is to all peoples? And why is he saying that to them? Is he saying that because the people in that synagogue, in their pride, in their entitlement, they had developed a very narrow mission. Their narrow mission was blessings for me now. And Jesus is reminding them the mission of God is wide. Eternal blessings for everyone eternally by faith in him. 
You see, this mission of God that Jesus is announcing here and really inaugurating it is what Luke will spend the rest of the book of Luke and into Acts developing is not just a marketing campaign that Jesus invented, but it is the message of the Bible. Starting uh, from the earliest pages, we could, we could look at Abraham and what the Lord does through Abraham, promising him that through him covenantal blessings will go to all the families of the earth. Through Moses gathering a people unto himself and the purpose of that people As David would write in the Psalms, a desire would be that all the nations you have made will come and worship before you. O Lord, that they will bring glory to your name. The king of Israel knew and he had a heart and his desire that all nations would worship the Lord. And then through the prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Isaiah 49.6 says this, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And that prophecy, Isaiah and the Lord through Isaiah is saying that his anointed one, it's too light of a thing for him only to be for this one people. No, his glory will be to the ends of the earth. It's for all peoples. So you see, in reminding the people there in that synagogue in Nazareth, in reminding the people and confirming to them his mission, Jesus was challenging their prideful, entitled, unbelieving hearts to realize something very profound. They were living for the wrong mission. They had the wrong mission in mind. And the corrective is this, Jesus' mission See, the ultimate corrective to our entitlement, our unbelief, the same as it was for those people then, is for us to be about gospel mission. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So we need to know what is gospel mission. We've already spoken of the gospel, but it's the essential content of this mission, so let me remind us once more. It's real easy. This is something you can remember and do. I ask the boys this every morning as we drive to school. I say, boys, you're gonna learn a lot at school today, but you already know the most important thing. It's the gospel. And I say, Winston, what are two words that tell us what the gospel is? And he says, good news. And I say, okay, Joseph, what's five words that tell us what that good news is? It says, God loves sinners through Jesus. God loves sinners through Jesus. That's the gospel. As the angels spoke of, and I already read, this gospel is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The gospel, this good news, is not just for one kind of people. It's not just for that synagogue in Nazareth. It's not just for Israel. It's for all of you. Everyone in this room can respond to that five-word piece of good news and come to know the living creator of the world and to enjoy him for eternity. Friends, what other mission would be more glorious and more a privilege to be part of? The people that Jesus was speaking to were not moved from their amazement to embrace that mission, but to anger 
because they obscured their vision of what was true with their entitlement and their unbelief, such that their response was to reject. What about you? Have you or will you repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, embrace his gospel to all nations? Would you lay aside your entitlements, your entitlements to comfort, your entitlements to security, your entitlements to whatever it is that would make you feel fulfilled? You see, in our world today, oftentimes our entitlements, our ones, yes, they can be health and wealth and prosperity, but in our culture today, oftentimes our wants come in the form of comfort. Come in the form of comfort. We, we can have this therapeutic culture where personal hurts and sufferings, as we look back at our past, that becomes the miracle that we want to see in our place that we see happening in Capernaum. We have these things that, that we, we want to be emotionally healed from And his wounds can distract us from the mission. I want you to know that the people in Nazareth also had hurts and wounds. They were living under an unjust dictator government. They had a lot of pains that they would have wanted Jesus to salve and speak into. But he doesn't do that. He calls them to mission. Now, hear me. Your hurts matter. Many of you, and I know because I've had pastoral conversations with you, privilege of so many years of ministry here, have had difficult paths and have hard things that have happened to you, things that you're still wrestling with to this day, grieving over and lamenting from. And I hope that this church can be a place where you do find grace and renewal in those things as you talk about them, as you seek counsel from them. But know that the promise of no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow is an eschatological future promise. And I can't, as someone who loves you, promise you that you will come to a place where all of your wounds are healed now, where all of your tears cease now. But what I can do is I can invite you into this mission that God has called you to. And I can promise you that if you embrace this mission by faith in the living Christ, then you will find joy and hope and purpose because it is what our Savior prescribed here in these verses. Friends, let's not look inward to find our mission, to feed our needs or to heal our wounds, but let's look to Christ and to see his mission, and to embrace it, and to spread the gospel to all nations. What would this look like? You know, but just to remind you. It would look like doing what a friend of mine recently did in the U.S. He recently got a promotion. And this promotion, if uh, all goes well, which he's a very competent and skilled uh, businessman, I think it will, he stands to increase his wealth by tens of millions of dollars in the next years. But him and his wife prayerfully sat down and said, we're not changing anything. 
We're not changing our lifestyle. We're not going to build huge trust funds for our kids. The excess is going to the advance of the gospel around the world. Now, you might not be entrusted with tens of millions of dollars, but you're entrusted with something. What would surrendering your life to Christ and embracing his mission and saying, yes, the widows of Sidon, yes, the warlords of Syria, those are the ones who need to hear the gospel and I'm gonna be about making disciples of all nations. Here's what I have in my hands, Lord. Use it as you will. For some of you, this might mean continuing to endure the questions aimed to shame you from family or friends. What are you, what are you doing on Sunday? Why do, you, why do you go to that church? Why are you friends with those people? I remember so many questions with, with some of you even here in this room. As we began to develop friendships across cultures, and in some of your cases, even towards marriage, and, and family just having no category for that. But for you to be able to stand firmly on the promises of Christ and say, I love those people because Christ first loved me. And a person who's an image bearer, which is everybody, is worthy of his love and to hear his gospel message. Kids, I don't want you to think that you are left out of this. A 12-year-old friend of mine in Europe recently expressed a great way a commitment to this mission. Uh, her parents were seeking to move from the countryside into the city to be part of a church plant. And at first, my 12-year-old friend really didn't like that idea. She liked her countryside life. She liked her friends there. But as she prayed and thought through this, she said to her parents, let's go, I'm ready. And that word of encouragement to tell her parents that, yes, I'm in, let's do it together, was the encouragement they needed to make the final decision. So 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds, whoever you might be, be committed to God's mission to all nations. So friends, I hope this is of encouragement to you. It's of invitation to you. I don't know if you came in this morning full of amazement and awe at Jesus, and I hope you are. But more than an emotional sense of amazement and awe at Jesus, I hope that you can feel the gracious invitation from our Savior to have our pride defeated, to have our entitlement defeated by embracing the Savior and his mission to the entire world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for a passage like this that re reminds us that we can't remain as we are. Lord, these words of Jesus confront us and they challenge us. So Father, I pray that there would be a spirit of repentance even in my own heart as I read these words again. Lord, for any entitlement, any pride, any ways that I become demanding, oh Lord, forgive me. Forgive us. Will we be a people that are passionate about your cause, O oh Lord, to see the nations know, to make disciples, to teach them the gospel, 
people from near and from far off. Oh, Lord, would you do it to the glory of Christ? We pray in his name. Amen.